You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right. Well, good morning, guys. So I thought maybe I picked the, the lowest attended Sunday of the year to share my testimony because I've done it so many different times, but I guess it's not going to be the lowest attended Sunday this morning. I, I told everybody, I thought maybe 10, 15 people show up. I'd sit on the little joy, joy little square right here, but uh, I got a stool. So uh, I'm going to share with you my testimony today. Um, but before we do, uh, I want to give just a couple of uh, acknowledgements and and uh, and start off with something funny. But uh, just just the other day, uh, we guys we celebrated Christmas, and it was the biggest and the best Christmas ever uh, here at North Valley's history. The church is about seven years old, and uh, you guys did a great job. So thank you for serving. Thank you for giving. Thank you for everything you're doing to help get the name and fame of Jesus all throughout the North Valley. So can we celebrate you guys for a moment, our church? Um, so it, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, just anybody been out in the snow this last week uh, at all? There you go. Yeah, I was out at the Kendrick Cabin the other day with my wife and kids, and we decided since I've got a Toyota Tacoma that we would go off the beaten trail, and they shut down Wing Mountain, I guess, you know, so they got tired of trying to run that thing, and so we said, we'll go and find our own little hills, and I found myself going towards Kendrick Cabin, the Kendrick Peak area, and next thing you know, uh, I'm just like, I'm, I'm overestimating my Tacoma, and uh, I, we've got the music rocking, we're jamming, we're driving down this snowy dirt road, and all of a sudden, there's no more tire tracks, and I'm like, we're good. I just put it four high, started to gun it. Next thing you know, and we were there for about two hours. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, little did I know, my little girl Maya prayed that God would get us out somehow. And uh, then a backcountry skier shows up. And I see him and I talk to him and, and I found out that he had a snow shovel. And so uh, me and a gentleman by the name of Gavin uh, dug out my truck, and we got out of there. So yeah, it was pretty cool. I told Maya on the way home that uh, I said, Maya, did you know that you prayed and God answered your prayers? So it was so cool. Um, Well, this morning, before we get started, I want to share with you a funny little joke I heard uh, the other day. There was this little old lady Uh, who would come out every single morning on her steps of her front porch, she'd raise her arms to the sky and shout, praise the Lord. And well, one day there was this atheist that moved in right next door. And over time, he became irritated at this little old lady. So every morning when he would step onto his front porch, he'd yell out, there is no God. And time passes, and the two carry on this way every single day. Uh, Then one morning in the mid of winter, the little old lady stepped out on her front porch and shouted, Praise the Lord, but I have no food and I am hungry. Please provide for me, O Lord. And the next morning, uh, she stepped out on her front porch, and there were two huge bags of groceries sitting there. And she said, praise the Lord. And she cried out, he has provided for me groceries. And the atheist jumps out of the hedges and shouted, there is no Lord. I bought you those groceries. (laughs) 
the little old lady threw her arms into the air and shouted, praise the Lord. He has provided groceries and he made the devil pay for them. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. Uh, I think some of my favorite jokes are the little old lady jokes. Well, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks uh, for today. You are a good God. And uh, I love the way that you have worked in the lives of so many people. And Lord, when we get out and we see the beauty of creation, it's hard to deny your existence. Father, when we see prayers answered, it's hard to deny that you exist. Thank you, God, that you have brought new life into this church through uh, salvation, and many will go public in their faith in this coming year. And Lord, I pray for the marriages and the people here today that need hope, and God, I ask that you give them hope that you can only give, maybe through the power and the testimony of a life changed. Thank you, Lord, for changing my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Just the last couple of days, I've been with a friend of mine who's been pretty discouraged, and he's gone through a a divorce. His wife left him, and he started a wonderful organization and uh, trying to appoint a successor, and uh, it doesn't look like it's going to work out, and that was his dream uh, company. Then he started another company that took off and had kind of worldwide acclaim and and, uh, kind of the Upland game uh, setting, creating products and in gear, and uh, he sold that company because he was in desperate need, and, and he's found himself uh, kind of at a, a feeling like he struck out three strikes. And I uh, found myself sitting with him, trying to encourage him, and trying to give him words of hope. And, uh, you know, I began to share with him about how God's worked into my life, and I think maybe I'm getting through just a little bit. Um, One of the things that you have that is so important as a Christian is that you have a testimony. And your testimony is unarguable. People can argue about the existence of God, but they cannot argue about your personal experience with Jesus Christ. And today, when I'm going to share you my story, you're going to hear my testimony. And my hope is, is that in this series, God Saves, is you start figuring out your story. You start figuring out how to communicate your story. The story that you're going to hear today from me is one of those stories that gets told in churches all around America and all around the world because it's the story of a radical troubled a teen that's troubled and then he gets radically saved. And those stories get told all the time. Um, but the, the equally important is the testimony of a kid that grew up in a Christian home and loved the Lord, and had some little streaks of maybe disobedience or whatever, but they faithfully walked with Jesus. And maybe at 13, 14, their faith became their own, and they they really lived in a life that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Those stories don't get told as much. They don't get celebrated, and that's perhaps why I'm even hesitant to share with you my testimony today. Um, But I'm going to do it. Because I want you to know kind of where I came from and how it all started and what God did. And if God didn't save me, I I don't know. I guess there wouldn't be a North Valley, or at least uh, I wouldn't be leading it. Maybe God would raise somebody else up to do it. So let me start with my story. I kind of broke it down in in the early years, in in the beginning chapter of my life. Uh, The early years, I was born in Dallas, Texas. 
So I do cheer the Cowboys, uh, but never when they play the Cardinals. Um, but I was born in Dallas. All my family's from Dallas. Um, my mom and dad met in Dallas. I was born in Dallas. And my dad, when I was born in 1978 at Baylor Hospital, uh, downtown Dallas, right next to the seminary I would later attend, um, I, uh, I, my dad was in seminary. And see, my dad came to faith in Christ uh, through the Campus Crusade ministry. I don't know, maybe some of you guys have heard of that as a college ministry, went around the country and did a great deal of good. He became a Christian and, and fell in love with uh, my mom, and uh, he decided he was going to be a missionary. And so that's what happens when you get saved and you're on fire. You're just like, I'll go anywhere, God. So he's going to be a missionary in Austria. That was his plan. So he goes to Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm born somewhere in the middle of that. Um, I've got, at that time, 1978, I had an older brother and an older sister. My older sister, April, she was four years older than me. My older brother, Rob, two years older than me. And then I had a little brother uh, named Dave, and he was uh, two years younger than me. So we're all about two years apart. So dad's in seminary. And I can remember as a very early child, my dad had this kind of this big desk, and he still has it to this day. Perhaps when he passes on, I'm going to ask him if he'll let me have that thing before he goes. <laughs> but it's this beautiful big desk and big wooden desk. And uh, he got it when he was in construction, uh, working in, in the Dallas area, and um, a big building was closing down. But that desk meant a lot to me because it symbolized kind of this entire early years of my life. See, my dad is a very driven man, a very accomplished man, and, and uh, he went to seminary and he studied on that desk. And every house we ever had had what we called a study, a place where dad would study. And uh, from there, uh, he, uh, we decided that uh, through, through a long series of circumstances that uh, we were going to move uh, to Monterey, Mexico. I was about two years old, uh, maybe a year and a half, and uh, my dad said, you know what? I'm not going to be a missionary. Uh, he had a friend by the name of Frank Minrith, who's uh, kind of the father of Christian uh, psychiatry. Uh, and, and if you Google the, the father of modern-day Christian psychiatry, you'd probably find Frank Minrith. He wrote dozens and dozens of books on Christian psych psychiatry. Uh, psychiatry is where you actually prescribe medicine. So it's not psychology. It's, it's medicine plus psychology. And there was very few Christian psychiatrists at the time. So Frank was like my, my uh, kind of like my uncle, uh, not by blood, but we grew up around the Menra family, and uh, we had a lot of fun together. And so Frank talks my dad into becoming a psychiatrist. So my dad is, says, you know what? I got the Christian theological education. He got a THM, a master in theology from Dallas Seminary, graduates, and then says, we're moving to Monterey, Mexico, because we're broke. And we need to go to a cheap med school. And it was a wonderful international med school. And they brought in uh, teachers and professors and doctors from all around the world to teach there. And so we went to Mexico. So my earliest years, I spoke English and Spanish all the time. And today, I know tons of Spanish. Like, yo quiero toco bell. <laughs> Donde está el baño? Una cerveza, por favor. Just joking, but... But you know what I'm saying? So uh, I didn't know Spanish very... I mean, I knew Spanish back then. I don't know it very well now. You, you, if you don't use it, you lose it. So anyway, we're down there in Mexico. And I grow up. And again, there's that desk in the study. 
And, uh, and then we, we finished Monterey. And we, we got up to, my, we moved back to Dallas for a short little stint. And then we moved to Little Rock because Frank and my dad kind of came up with a plan and said, hey, let's, why don't we branch out and create a national branch all around the country? And uh, so my dad says, ah, well, I'll go to Little Rock and open up a practice there. I, I hear the hunting's good in Arkansas, so we're going to Arkansas. So we went to Arkansas, and we, we got to Arkansas, and my dad says, well, I got to finish uh, uh, a residency, because once you do medical school, then you got to go to residency. So you do residency. And in the home that we had, there was the study, and there was that desk. And what that desk symbolized to me was time out. Because as a, as a, as a, as a student, um, a professional student, mind you, is that it is a, you have to have discipline to study all the time. You have to study eight hours a day, sometimes 10 hours a day. And you just have to study all the time. So as a kid, my dad was in that study all of my early years. I mean, every day that he was home, he would be in that study. And there was very few times that we could interrupt him when he was in that study. And so I remember that study very, very significantly in my life. And my dad looks back on those years now and feels a little bit of remorse that he was pretty disconnected. But how does a, a doctor who doesn't have a whole lot of money uh, educate himself or a student? I mean, you have to put in the time. So anyway, uh, we're in Little Rock, Arkansas, and at that time in the 80s, just so you know, it was the worst time in Little Rock's history. Now, I'm not going to blame it on Bill Clinton. He was the uh, governor during the time. I'm not going to get into the politics, but I will say this. I was a kid in the city, in the community. It was the most trouble that that city has ever had in American history, um, now, you might go back to like, you know, the early civil rights days and some of that. Well, okay, HBO came in town and did a special on our schools and called it Gang Banging in Little Rock. <laughs> you would never imagine that. But little did I know, listen to the story, the Crips and the Bloods got kicked out of LA by other gang members and they come to Little Rock and set up major drug operations. And so... I'm in, uh, I, I go to, uh, there was a really terrible system there in Little Rock. I'm going to just, uh, just tell you about it just for a minute because it does shape my, my childhood. Um, we have what's called hillbillies and rednecks in Arkansas, okay? And uh, so I'm politically incorrect right now, so please don't take too much of an offense. But So I'm, I can speak about this because I'm in Arkansas. So... Uh, we have folks that have never seen black people. We have people that have generational, white people that have generationally been taught and raised that black people are, are not fully like uh, uh, human or equal. On the other side, we had African-Americans in the projects of Little Rock that were taught from a very young age that white people are oppressors, white people are uh, will we'll always oppress and, and, and take away privileges and rights and responsibilities. And so then what the school decided to do, they decided to create a busing system where they went out to the remote sticks and got the hillbillies and the rednecks and they bring them into town and then they went to the projects and got the kids. And so do you imagine it was a peaceful experience? <laughs> no, it was tumultuous. Um, so as a, as a, as a young kid, 
I had this thing going on in my life where uh, I had a great family. My mom and dad loved Jesus. They loved, they, they, they loved, they, we, we, went, we went to church. But as an early age kid, I mean, I was in racial hostility all the time, all the time, even in my elementary school. I mean, kids were getting thrown through uh, the, uh, lunchroom windows. There was fights. I mean, it was a disaster. I heard the N-word. I heard all sorts of racial tension and fights all the time. And the gangs were all in the high schools, and it was just a mess. And so my parents didn't know what to do. They put me in a private school in the early years. I didn't fit in the private school um, then they took me and put me in public schools. I got in trouble in the public schools. I went in and out of schools, I think every semester, you know? So, I mean, I knew all the schools. I knew all the schools. I knew all the principals too and what their offices looked like. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm having a troubled time. My parents don't know what to do with me. Um, I, I remember as a, uh, a young kid seeing all the, all the, tough stuff that was going on, and I wanted an outlet. So I tried the sports, you know, and I tried football, basketball, baseball, and all that stuff. I was decent. You know, I made the, I made the teams, uh, but I wasn't great. And so then somebody gave me a skateboard. You believe it or not, I mean, I'm wearing boots, but I, I, I had a, somebody gave me a skateboard, and I jumped on that thing, and I was really good. And uh, I became really good at skateboarding, and I skated all the time for years and years and years. And so the reason why I like skateboarding is because I could be out and I could be out late. And when you're a skateboarder and you want to skate the city, you got to go when the businesses are closed. The problem with skateboarding, let me just speak to the parents for a moment. The problem with skateboarding is, is generally it doesn't matter how old the kids are in the skate clique. They can be 25 and they should not be skateboarding. They need to go get a real job. Um, or they could be 14. All that matters is, are you good? And if you're good, you can skate with anybody. And so that's what happened with me. I was really good. So I found myself skateboarding with 25-year-old guys when I was 13 years old and skating with 30-year-old guys that, that shouldn't be skateboarding. <laughs> And, and so I was skating with all these people. I mean, people that got out of prison, people that, I mean, whatever. And so anyway, long story short is, is I found myself in a lot of trouble, a tremendous amount of trouble. And uh, what happened was I, I, I came to a place and I said, it was such a pathetic deal. I said, man, all I want to do is if I could play the guitar, uh, sing Guns N' Roses, and... Uh, and have a cool girlfriend, my life would be fixed, you know. So I learned how to play the guitar. I got a girlfriend, and my life was not fixed. So I'm, I'm in my adolescence years, in my teenage years, and um, I got into drugs. I got into alcohol. I got into girls. I got into, it was really bad. I got into figuring out a way to make money uh, in school. By I would, I would work with a, a team of shoplifters and... I was in organized crime from the time I was 10, 12 years old. And I, I would get the older kids in the junior high to go into Dillard's and everything else. And we'd, I'd pick out all the clothing line based on the requests that I got from the Crips and the Bloods and the, and the KKK kids. I mean, it was terrible. 
And so, and then I'm supplying everything for, for, from, from merchandise to drugs uh, to the schools, to the junior high and a high school. So I'm talking about, I was a bad kid. I was a really bad kid. My parents are literally, they do not know what to do with me. I had a best friend growing up named Sam. I named my son after him. My son's like, you could have picked a better name, dad. Uh, but I, uh, I named my, my uh, Sam was one of my closest friends growing up. And it was so bad. The parents would have meetings and say, one of them has to leave the state. And uh, my parents were like, well, we're not sending Ryan out of state. And they're like, well, we're sending Sam. And so to this day, Sam says, your parents should have chose you. (laughs) Uh, But uh, Sam got shipped off to boarding school and we were separated. I mean, it was just bad trouble. And so uh, all that to say is, is I kind of hit rock bottom. And uh, I hit rock bottom my senior year. I was so upset with my, about my life. My dad had told me that I, if I'm not going to listen to the faith values, and I need to just listen to logic. And uh, my life was going nowhere. And I asked God, I was the organizer of a Cancun uh, trip to go down and party. Of course, that would be something I was going to do in high school. I organized a class party for all the seniors. And I got my trip paid for, you know, because I was the organizer. Uh, this organization called Get Travel. They picked a bad kid to do this. I mean, I brought an army of bad people down to Mexico and we, we partied and I asked God, if you'll just let me survive Cancun, then I'll, I'll come back and I'll listen to maybe what you would do in my life. So I don't remember Cancun. I came back from Cancun and I literally said, God, what do you have for me? Because I was empty, dead empty. And, uh, Somebody invited me to go on a a church trip to Colorado and experience the outdoors. And I had a friend by the name of Matt Sherman who was a partier like me, and he would go to rave parties, and he was really weird. And uh, he, he got saved, and his life was radically different. I thought he was joking. I thought he was faking it so he could get the Christian girls, but he wasn't. And so he invites me on this trip, and I'm like, okay, God, if you're going to change my life, now's the time to do it. So the story that you're about to see actually was played on the Inspiration Network for for years and years. It was crazy. Uh, I was asked to share my testimony in a large church, my home church, Fellowship Bible Church there in Little Rock. And somebody that was a part of the camera crew said, I'm going to go work for the Inspiration Network. Your, Your testimony needs to be on television. And so they've been playing this for a little bit. So this is dated and you can hear my draw. So that's why I picked the lowest attended Sunday of the year to play it. So watch this. You know, spanking him one time and, you know, I mean, every parent's probably had this experience. I mean, it's just a swat on the bottom. I mean, you're not, you're not beating him or drawing blood or anything, but it's an issue of the will. And he would look at me and say, that didn't hurt. Is that all you've got? (laughs) and it was just it was that mindset that we knew that we were in for a tough time in adolescence I did things in deliberate disobedience at times because I thought if they didn't find out it wouldn't really matter and so I was very sly I was very good at lying I was really good at hiding the truth deceiving them in a Christian home we thought and and, and yet they're going off like this, and you're thinking, Lord, what, 
you know, we've done what we thought you told us to do and we're not getting the fruit. So what's going wrong? I mean, my enemies were the church, the police, my parents. It was all the institutions I felt like that were trying to confine me. And so that was my perspective. So I said, I rebuke that. I don't want that authority in my life. I don't want Christ in my life. I don't want the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, that, would, that had been a whole difficult yeah. time period. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we knew that, you know, he was, you know, sneaking off and getting involved with drugs and alcohol. Uh, we tried well, to... Well, we were, we were suspicious yeah. at that point. You know, I mean, a parent always wants to believe the very best in the child and everything, and denial is a very real mechanism of, mm -hmm. of, of avoiding that. But, you know, we'd, we'd smelt alcohol on him. We had gotten comments back from community that, you know, we were concerned for Ryan and the use of substance. And at that point in time, my friends were into cocaine. They were partying every night. They had girls pregnant. People were getting abortions. Friends were going to jail for, for drugs for uh, violence, for assault and battery. For people, people got killed in car wrecks. I mean, this was all happening. And Ryan was, uh, um, th there, were, there was more confrontations with his dad. He was beginning to um, claim his ground and things like that. And I remember just throwing blows with my dad. And uh, I remember, uh, I can't remember who got who down. But I remember throwing blows at my dad, and then somehow we departed, and we went back up to the house, and it happened again. And the next thing I knew, uh, the boys, everyone was leaving the house. Uh, everyone was angry and upset. Ryan took off, got in his brother's truck, and sped off to town. I remember leaving, and I remember saying, I'm going to get so messed up that nobody even can tell who I am, because I don't care. It was a low point. It, w it was the lowest point, actually. And, uh, um, and we didn't hear from Ryan for two or three days. And I, I remember just weeping and going, God, I, I hate my life. And I have really no hope right now. And I don't even care if I live. He came back home a few days later completely broken. And uh, actually went to our bedroom and curled up in a fetal position and just said, I want my life back. I want my family back. I, I'm tired of this. I remember telling my parents that. I just said, you know, I, I really, I don't know exactly what I'm ready for. I don't know if it's Christianity, if it's what, but I'm just ready to come home. And I want, I want you to love me. I want to love you. I want to be a little bit better. I think it really had to start with me in the sense of, you know, asking for forgiveness, losing my anger. This reconciliation was only the first step. The lasting answer to Robert and Miriam's fervent prayers for their son was about to take place on a church camping trip. One night sitting all alone under a sky full of stars, Ryan reached outside of himself for the first time in his life. And then a, a scripture came to my mind. I wasn't a Bible scholar. I had skipped out on most of the Sunday schools. But it said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I remember holding on to that passage and I said, Lord, I'll lose my life for you. I'll lose it. Whoever Ryan Rice is in the past, I don't want to be anymore. And so from that point, I remember saying, Lord, I'll surrender everything. I don't care 
what it takes. I'm ready to follow after you full-heartedly. That's the irresistible grace. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, the best thing as us parents is we need to introduce our children to that irresistible grace. And in coming to know Christ, He gave me rest. He gave me peace and a promise that He's going to do a work that's about Him and it's greater than myself. Once you've trained the child, they've got the knowledge. When they become teenagers, the best thing and the only thing parents can give older teenagers is seeing the mom and dad in their personal walk with Christ and the father and the mother loving each other through the difficult times. There it is. Well, you know, what was really neat is after I became a Christian, I uh, went back to my family and asked for forgiveness, and uh, they forgave me. I went to my brother, my younger brother, who was not walking with the Lord, and I told him he needs to follow Jesus. And uh, we started a ministry together, and uh, we reached hard to reach teens for years in Little Rock. And then, um, uh, and then I met my wife, uh, Leslie, uh, there through that ministry, and she joined my side, and we served and worked in the church together for a number of years. And, and uh, that irresistible grace that my dad talked about, was, uh, it happened. It was just an overwhelming sense of God's grace. And so when I met Leslie, she was just a brand new believer, so I loved being around a, somebody who was fresh in her faith. And I had the opportunity to uh, work and serve along her side. And, and then uh, we got married. We met, uh, like Johnny Cash says, uh, we got married with a, in a fever. We, we got married within, uh, met and got married within nine months. So don't worry, there wasn't kids coming right there soon. And, but we, we, we stayed pure. We stayed, wanted to serve the Lord. And uh, we did that. And uh, we got married. And then we went down to Dallas Seminary. And, and uh, God, re- the next, that next phase after my early Christian, uh, my early days of professing Jesus as Lord was the redeeming years. And uh, God redeemed everything that was broken, you know. Um, He redeemed my relationships with a lot of my friends. I did lose a lot of my friends because that's what happens when you become a Christian. Your your old friends will hate your guts at times because you're not the the life of the party anymore. You're not the old you anymore. But many of them reached out to me, especially when hard times hit. And uh, God redeemed so much. I went down to seminary when I was in college. Uh, I was one of the lowest performing educational uh, students in, in high school, and I went to college and I was on the dean's list. I went to seminary, got scholarships, and God redeemed my mind. God redeemed my heart. God redeemed my relationships. God redeemed. And it was the most beautiful thing. So what are some life lessons uh, from this? I'll give you three. Uh, number one, life lesson from my life is, is that if you want to live, you need to die. Those words Jesus gave me, he didn't speak to me audibly, but God spoke to me. And he said, Ryan, if you want to live, you need to die. And I thought, well, that's not very nice. Is that my conscience or what is that? And scripture came to my mind and it was this passage, Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
You can't be a Christian and try to live your life the way you want to live your life. If you want to be a Christian, you have to die to the old way that you live. You have to say, you take control. You live through me, God. I don't want the old way. I want the new way. When I figured that out, that's when change happened. But when we try to, we can say a prayer, we could go get baptized, because I got baptized as a, as a teenager. I got baptized, and truth be known, I got baptized, and everybody thought I was a Christian for just a day or two. And uh, I really got baptized because there was this really cute girl named Allison Arrington, and she told me, I don't date non-Christian boys. And I said, well, I heard they're having a baptism tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm getting baptized. And she, she, I came up out of that water and she said, I don't believe it. <laughs> so I got rebaptized once I really became a Christian. But the Bible says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says those words and it's the core of discipleship. It's the core of being a Christian. If you're a Christian, then you've got to be willing to lose your old way of life. Your priorities change, your values change. You know, and, and there's a, coming up soon, we're going to be celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. He said something very similar. I'm sure that Jesus inspired him uh, when he fought for equality for all people during the civil rights movement. He says, if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. You and I need something worth living for that's greater than our own life. And uh, I came to a place and a realization that I, I'm willing to give everything up in order just to know Jesus Christ. And you and I, as we're going to find the most life that we could ever experience when we figure out what we could live for, uh, that we would even be willing to die for. I would say, I, I, I think it would be an honor to die for my faith. I know that sounds preposterous, but it's, I do believe that. Bible talks about martyrs, people that are dying for their faith is, is uh, they're, they're, they're um, rewarded in heaven. And, you know, I, I, I have it easy. I, I, I live in a nice house. I serve you guys. You guys don't try to kill me most of the time. Um, you know, so I, I'm just telling you, this call to sacrifice, it is challenging and it is hard, but it could be a lot harder. Uh, the people in persecuted countries, how, how do they read this? Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lesson number one, if you want to live, you need to die. Lesson number two for the parents, this is uh, perhaps give you hope. It, you have to realize this truth that's found in Scripture um, about that Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. I've cautioned and worked as a youth pastor for many years and talked to so many parents that saw my story and thought, it's going to happen for my kid too, for sure. And I give them this life lesson. That passage is a parenting principle. It's not a promise. The Bible says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Did my parents train me as a child to follow Jesus? Yes. When, when I was older, did I trust Jesus? I did. I came back. I didn't depart from the teaching. However, is that a promise for every parent? I would say no. And this is a life lesson. 
Bible knowledge commentary, the commentator wrote very wisely and said this, some parents have, however, have sought to follow this directive, but without this result, right? How many of you have raised kids and they're not following Jesus? Their children have strayed from the godly training the parents gave them. This illustrates the nature of a proverb, A proverb is a literary device whereby a general truth is brought to bear on a specific situation. Many of the proverbs are not absolute guarantees, for they express truths that are necessarily conditioned by prevailing circumstances. The beginning of Proverbs starts like this. The Proverbs of Solomon, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. It's about words of wisdom, insight. Verse three, to receive instruction in wise dealing. It's how to deal wisely in righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. These are the Proverbs. Commentator continues and says, though the Proverbs are generally and usually true, occasional exceptions may be noted. This may be because of the self-will or deliberate disobedience of an individual, a child. Whoever chooses to go his own way, the way of folly instead of the way of wisdom. Proverbs continues in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen and says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Every person is born with sin. Every person has to come to a, a place where they personally acknowledge their sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord. The parent's faith is not enough. The parent's training is not enough. There has to be an individual repentant heart to turn towards Jesus. And you and I can't control that heart. The commentator continues, it is generally true, however, that most children who are brought up in Christian homes under the influence of godly parents who teach and live God's standards follow that training. It was generally true that I trusted Jesus Christ. I was raised in a Christian home. It was generally true. That does happen. But I just want to encourage you parents that are going through and you did a good job raising your kids, but they're not following the Lord that it doesn't always happen that way. But generally it does. Ephesians 6, 4 says, If fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's a parenting principle. It's not a promise. Third life lesson is this, is that you pray big and you trust God. Just the other day, we were out in the back country uh, in the Kendrick Peaks, and my little daughter has learned the power of prayer and eight years old, and we were stuck. And she said to me, as we were walking through the snow, nobody around, she said, Sam, to my son, Dad, don't worry, I just prayed. I said, well, that's good. We need that. Good. She said, we'll get out of here. Sure enough, a Uh, Not too long after that, a a backcountry skier shows up with a snow shovel. And like typical human fashion, I didn't even acknowledge God's answer to prayer until I'm five hours down the road later. And all of a sudden I can say, Maya! And my wife's like, she's asleep, leave her alone. (laughs) And uh, I said, she prayed and God answered that prayer. How amazing is that? My encouragement to you is pray big and trust God. Um, when, I, when I became a Christian, I uh, asked God, I said, uh, God, I want through my personal testimony, one million people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
And um, I remember I shared that with a Christian mentor friend of mine, and he said, Ryan, you shouldn't pray prayers like that. That's, that's, that's crazy. And I was like, I literally was like, that insults me that you would say that to me. Like, why wouldn't I pray those kind of prayers? I can understand it is challenging to pray big prayers, but I would say, please, your problem is not faith. Your problem is fear. That's what the Bible tells us all the time. Our, our problem is fear. It's not faith. We need faith. We need tremendous faith, huge levels of faith. And we got to ask God for big prayers and trust that God can do anything he wants to do. So pray big. Uh, just about five weeks ago, I reached out to the Inspiration Network. I said, hey, I got funny news that you guys are still playing my testimony. I said, that's really interesting to me. How many years has it been now? And they're like, 16 years. I'm like, wow, I'm an old man. <laughs> I said, just curiously, could you tell me kind of the impact it's had? And here's what the guy wrote back. Dear Pastor Rice, your contact was passed on to me after you inquired about the impact of your testimony in 2003 evangelistic special series called Hope for the Holidays. Since 2003, this program has aired multiple times every December in, on the Inspiration Network, Inspiration TV, or International Christian TV Network around the world. It has been watched in 150 countries around the world. This program remains part of our many regular evangelistic outreach initiatives. This one's a special one, which last year we saw more than 2 million people pray to receive Jesus Christ and proclaim him as Lord. That was one year. Uh, most of that activity is generated through our online initiatives. So anyway, uh, he says, though I wasn't there when that special was produced, I want to personally thank you for participating. I expect, this is what got me. He said, I expect that you will have a great host of people welcoming you in heaven and saying thank you for sharing your testimony. What a day that'll be. Isn't that cool? We asked, uh, we calculated, it's probably like 16 million, and that's a conservative number of people that have prayed to receive Christ through that airing of that deal. So, you know, and the guy was giving me a hard time about praying for one. One million. And uh, my encouragement to you is pray big and trust God. A couple of Bible passages to close out. The worship team will come on up in just a minute. Go ahead and come on up, guys, if you'd like to. Um, Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Spend time with God. What do you want? Sounds like a hedonistic and selfish. And mo un but if you delight yourself in God, if God is your joy, then ask him whatever you want in your life. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Uh, what does another passage say? Jesus said it like this. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I mean, it's not like you, you, there's a special prayer that you say and everything happens. However, again, our problem is not faith. Our problem is fear. We're afraid to ask God for big things. We're afraid to put it out there. I have secret prayers still that I don't share with people because I don't want to be made fun of too bad. But I have big prayers and I pray big things and I ask God to do great things in my day, in my life, and through our church. And so pray things, big things, and trust God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to teach 
out of the testimony that you've given me. And uh, I pray for my friends here today, those that do not know you, today would be the day that they say, God, you save. You save my life. I acknowledge my sin. I believe that you are the Lord. And today I'll confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. And Lord, for all my friends here today that just needed encouragement through the testimony of a life change, would you work in their life and fill them up with hope, give them uh, encouragement that they're a part of a great church that loves Jesus and wants to see more of your work and your salvation come. Lord, you save. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.